1 John 3, starting at verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Verse 1 tells us what we are. Present tense. Verse 1 tells us what we are, and we are children of God. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He, Jesus, is revealed at His return, that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Verse 2 tells us what we will be. This is future tense. What we will be, and we will be, in an ultimate sense, like Jesus. Verse 3 is where we start this morning. And everyone who has this hope in Him, this is Jesus from the previous verse, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He, Jesus, is pure. Verse 3 tells us what we should be, what we should be, present tense, right now, and we should be purified, meaning we should practice holiness. According to verse 3, our hope in Jesus' return should make a practical difference in us. It should create a spiritual purification process in us. The premise is that a genuine Christian will manifest visible, tangible evidence of being a Christian. Someone that is a Christian, in the authentic sense, will manifest visible, tangible evidence of being a Christian. And that Christian evidence fits into two categories. First, what someone believes what someone believes. Christianity is defined as an Abrahamic, monotheistic religion based on the life and teachings of Jesus from Nazareth, meaning there are certain essential teachings about Christianity that someone must believe in order to be considered a Christian. From Christianity's beginnings, those teachings have... <laughs> often been summarized in different confessions and creeds that articulate what Christianity teaches. The most famous earlier creeds were the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, because it matters what we believe about Jesus and Christianity. Second is how someone behaves how someone behaves. What someone believes determines how someone behaves. And there is such a thing as acceptable Christian behavior. And that is a behavior that is consistent with a biblical worldview. And both of these categories are essential. What someone believes and then how someone behaves are both essential. If someone believes the teaching that is essential to the Christian faith, but his personal conduct and behavior contradicts that Christian faith he subscribes to, then his professed Christianity has a serious question mark attached to it. 
And then if someone's personal conduct and behavior is consistent with the Christian faith, but what he believes is inconsistent with the Christian faith, then he cannot be a Christian. An example of that. Our doctor is a general practitioner and uh, is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's a fantastic, fantastic man, and we're extremely grateful to be his patients. His moral character is as pronounced and probably more so than most of us in this room, including me. His behavior would actually resemble a committed evangelical. And we share some of the same core values, but he's not an evangelical. He's a Mormon. And from a theological perspective, Mormonism and historic Christianity uh, have literally nothing in common. There's not one theological tenet that is essential to each group that we can agree on. Not one. There is no theological commonality between us. None. So believing and behaving are both essential to being a Christian. It is believing that actually saves someone because Christianity is something to be believed, but it is a subsequent behaving that authenticates that believing. I, I feel I should probably rename this sermon as Believing That Behaves. Believing That Behaves. Because believing on Christ results in a behavior that is appropriate to Him. The next section, starting not in verse 4, that's a misprint, starting not in verse 4, but verse 3, focuses on Christian behavior. The big idea of this section is stated in verse 3. We just read it. Let me read it again. And everyone who has this hope in Him, Jesus, from the preceding verse, purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. And remember, Jesus is the God-man. This is a comment on behaving. In this context, the word pure means to be free from sin and free from spiritual contamination. A synonym to being pure is holiness. Holiness. An exact parallel to this verse is mentioned in 1 Peter 1. Notice verses 15 and 16. But as he, God, who called you is holy, again, a synonym. We could translate that pure. He who has called you is holy, you also be holy or pure in all your conduct. Conduct is our behavior. Verse 16, because, notice, as it is written. Peter is quoting previous scripture. As it is written, be holy, or be pure, for I, God, am holy. Where was that statement first written? In the Torah. The Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate. Consecrate means to dedicate ourselves to a sacred person. 
You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy. Why? For I, God, am holy. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. The word holy isn't used that often in modern secular culture. And if it is used, it is sometimes used as an insult in claiming that someone is self-righteous because he acts holier than thou. Or sometimes that word is used as a meaningless word, such as holy smoke, or holy cow, or holy guacamole. I don't use that last one. Guacamole cannot, in any sense, be holy. Can. The word holy and its derivatives are used over a thousand times throughout the Bible. The word translated into our language as holy was the Hebrew word Kadesh, spelled K-A-D-A-S-H, Kadesh. The primary meaning of that Hebrew word Kadesh is to cut apart, to separate, to cut something apart, to separate. It is from the same root word uh, as the words sanctified and saint. Those are all related words. Saint, sanctified, sanctification, holy, and holiness mean a separation a distinct separation from sin. To argue that God is holy means that God is completely, thoroughly separate from sin. God even calls himself by that name. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, God is referred to as the Holy One. The word holy is used more often as a prefix to God's name than is any other attribute. More often than God is called the gracious God, and more often than God is called the merciful God, and more often than God is called the almighty God, more often than those attributes, God is said to be the holy God. Also, nowhere else in Scripture are God's other attributes ever repeated in triple succession. God is never called love, love, love. Nowhere is he called eternal, eternal, eternal. Nowhere is he called truth, truth, truth. But notice Isaiah 6 and verse 3 reads, and one, from the preceding verse, this is one of the angel-like creatures we sang about called seraphims that guard God's throne. And one seraphim cried to another seraphim and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory the ancient jewish masoretic scribes were responsible to copy the old testament scriptures and to do so with incredible precision and accuracy and exactitude if during the course of copying the scriptures from one manuscript to another manuscript. Um, if a scribe came to the name of God 
in a particular text, he was required at that point to get up from his table. He was to thoroughly bathe himself, change his clothes, find a fresh pen, sit back down, and then copy that divine name. And if that divine name was in that same text, five words after that, the entire procedure was repeated. If a king entered the room as a scribe copied that name, the name of God was considered so holy and sacred that this scribe was not even to acknowledge that king until after he had finished writing the name of God. That's how holy and set apart God's name was to the ancient Jewish people. God is emphatic that his holiness is absolutely essential to who he is as God. Holiness is one of his attributes as God. A divine attribute is a characteristic or something that is true about God. Some time ago, I did a 13-part series on God's attributes. So I'm just barely touching on that subject this morning. God's attributes fit into two separate categories. The first category is God's natural attributes. God's natural attributes are those permanent characteristics that are part of God's nature as God. Meaning no one else apart from God has these same attributes And apart from these attributes, God couldn't be God. Some examples of those attributes, God is eternal, meaning God has no beginning and God has no ending. God is immutable, meaning God cannot change from who he is as God. God is omnipotent, meaning God has all power. God is omnipresent meaning God is present at all points in this universe and all at the same moment in time. God is omniscient, meaning God knows all that there is to know. And God is sovereign, meaning that God is in absolute control of all that is in the universe. So those are his natural attributes. Second, there are God's moral attributes. God's moral attributes are those characteristics God possesses that can, don't miss this, that can, to some lesser degree, be passed on to us. These attributes can be shared and passed on to us, to a lesser degree. Uh, Some examples are, God is love. Now, we are to also love. It's just we cannot love to the same degree God can. God is good. We are also to be good. It's just we cannot be good to the same degree God is good. God is faithful. God is peace. And notice God is holy. Holy is one of his moral attributes that can, to some degree, be passed on to us. Notice the definition. God's holiness is his intrinsic and transit, transcendent, pure, sinless and righteous perfection. God's holiness is his intrinsic and transcendent, pure perfection. 
Perfection is sinless and righteous. The fact God's holiness is said to be intrinsic means His holiness is who He is because He is God. One example, swimming is intrinsic to a fish. Swimming is just part of who a fish is as a fish. In that same sense, holiness is a characteristic or attribute that is intrinsic to God being God. The word transcendent means above or outside of. Above or outside of. So the fact God is transcendent means He exists above and outside of of his creation. God is distinct from all that he has made. God is one of a kind. We cannot make an accurate comparison of God to something else because there is nothing else we can compare God to. Notice Isaiah 40 verse 18. To whom then, these are questions, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The answer to these rhetorical questions is no one and nothing. No one is like God. And nothing can be compared to God. Because God is totally, utterly, absolutely transcendent. And he is pure perfection. Meaning he is the ultimate sinless being. Exodus 15 verse 11 who is like you, O Lord? No one. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? No one can be God. And no one can possess his degree of holiness. But to a lesser degree, we can separate ourselves from sin, and that's holiness just on a smaller scale. The problem is... That holiness is becoming almost a foreign concept in the modern Western church. I am deeply concerned about the state of the church in the West. A graphic example of that was just this past month that Transformation Church in Tulsa. Transformation's pastor is a millennial named Michael Todd. Michael Todd is the latest big name in evangelicalism, primarily, though, inside the charismatic movement. And he has an enormous following. He attracts thousands uh, to his church. His church recently purchased the massive Sprint Bank Event Center in Tulsa, demonstrating that bigger isn't necessarily better. Each time I look in the mirror, I'm reminded bigger isn't necessarily better. <laughs> Mr. Todd is virtually untrained in biblical studies and literally has no clue about sound doctrine. In a recent sermon, he said that Jesus never reached his potential. That's blatant error. And then someone asked him, and I remember seeing this, on the internet. Someone asked him about his position on same-sex marriage, and his response was, quote, that he didn't know. He just didn't know. There are two possible reasons for that response. One, it's possible he actually does know. 
He does know the biblical position on same-sex marriage, and he refused to comment on that because he's afraid he would lose YouTube views and subscriptions. In that case, he lied, and he is a coward and has no business in the pulpit. Then second, it's possible he actually doesn't know He doesn't know the biblical position on same-sex marriage. And if that's the case, then he's ignorant and a spiritual novice. And according to 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, he's unqualified to be a pastor. But more recent, Michael Todd organized a massive Easter-themed production called Ransom. He said, I'd never done an Easter sermon I wasn't prepared to start now, so he organized this massive theatrical production called Ransom. It included dozens of dances, flashing lights, pyrotechnics, demonic characters, dry ice, and covers of Justin Timberlake and Beyonce songs. It also included a facsimile of twerking and a female nailed to the cross. Segments of that production are on YouTube, but its worst parts are too shameful for me to present in a sermon. Someone described that production in one word, and that word was unholy. Unholy. The pushback online has been ferocious, as it should have been. People coming down on him and what his church had created. And Mr. Todd has played as expected, the victim card ever since. To better understand the spiritual bankruptcy of Transformation Church, the, quote, hipster, Pastor Carl Lentz, has just been added to the staff at Transformation Church. Carl Lentz is the disgraced former pastor of Hillsong Church, New York City, Uh, Discovery Plus has a three-episode documentary called Breaking Hillsong that covers some of his sexual indiscretions. In addition to that, it comments on the overall corruption of the church itself. And even more disturbing information has come out about Hillsong since then. This is happening because there's no commitment to holiness. We're, We're more into pragmatism. What attracts the numbers is the holy grail to modern evangelicals, and that's unfortunate. The injunction to practice personal holiness, to be pure in a spiritual sense, is mentioned in verse 3, where John said, we are to be purified ourselves because, because God himself is pure. Meaning we are to practice holiness ourselves because God himself is is holy. Then verses 4 through 10 comment on three reasons that holiness is necessary. And remember, holiness means to be separate from sin. First reason, sin is incompatible with divine law. Sin is incompatible with divine or God's law. Verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. There are different biblical definitions for sin, uh, but one of them is mentioned here in verse 4. Notice the definition. Sin is the transgression of divine law. 
Transgression means to act against a law, a rule, or code of conduct. So sin means to transgress, to act against divine law. Sin is lawlessness. If divine law tells us don't and we do, then that's transgressing divine law. If divine law tells us to do and then we don't, then that's transgressing divine law. Second reason, sin is incompatible with Jesus' sacrifice. Sin is incompatible with Jesus' sacrifice. Notice verse 5. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested, meaning he was born on earth, assumed a human form, to take away our sins. How did Jesus take away our sins? Through his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. John's gospel mentioned that earlier on. John 1, verse 29. The next day John, this is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The primary sacrifice, the primary animal sacrifice used during the times of the tabernacle and then the Jerusalem temple was a lamb. So Jesus is compared to a sacrificial lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, notice, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus wasn't born to be some religious guru. Jesus wasn't here to be a great teacher or a moral example or a martyr or a motivational communicator, or just a doer of miracles. No, no, no. Jesus was born to die, to take away and remove our sins from us through forgiveness. Air Florida Flight 90 was a scheduled U.S. domestic passenger flight from now Ronald Reagan uh, Washington National Airport to Fort Lauderdale. On January 13, some of us older remember this, January 13, 1982, the Boeing 737 crashed into the 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River. The cause of that crash was determined after to be pilot error. The plane hit seven occupied vehicles on the bridge and destroyed 97 feet of guardrail before plunging through the ice into the Potomac River. That aircraft carried 74 passengers and five crew members. Four motorists on the bridge died upon impact, and most passengers and crew members also died. Time magazine carried an extensive article about that crash. That article was entitled, The Man in the Water because a passenger named Arlen Williams was in the ice-cold water clinging to a piece of wreckage from the plane. A helicopter dropped a line down to rescue this man, but each time the line came down, this man grabbed it and passed it on to someone else that was struggling in the water. He continued passing on that rescue line to others until the line was dropped and he wasn't there to grab it because he had succumbed to hypothermia and he had drowned. In assisting in that rescue operation, 
He made the ultimate sacrifice so others could be saved. And in a much more macro sense than that, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He sacrificed himself so we could be saved from our sins. That's the reason his name, Yeshua, Yeshua, Jesus, means Savior. Verse 5. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. Now notice the second half of this verse. And in him, meaning in Jesus, there is no sin. Jesus qualified to sacrifice himself for our sins because he was sinless. Jesus was sinless himself. And that teaching is a non-negotiable, essential to the Christian faith. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he, God, God the Father in particular, made him, Jesus, his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Hebrews seven twenty six. For such a high priest. Jesus was fitting for us. Who is holy. Harmless. Undefiled. Separate from sinners. And has become higher than the heavens. The Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University just did a recent study to determine if evangelical Christians have changed significantly from before the COVID pandemic in 2020 to after the pandemic in 2023. The results were shocking. There was a huge drop among evangelicals who claimed to be deeply committed to practicing their faith. From 85% of evangelicals that claimed to be committed to the faith pre-pandemic to now just 50% post-pandemic. The percentage of evangelicals that hold to a biblical worldview fell from 19% before the pandemic to 13% after the pandemic. The percentage of Christians that believe God is the basis of all truth fell from 69% before the pandemic to now 63%. In addition, there was a significant drop from 58% pre-pandemic to 44% post-pandemic of evangelicals that believe Jesus was actually sinless. Less than half just 44% of evangelicals that were questioned believe Jesus was actually sinless. The reason for such a depressing number could be ignorance because most churches don't preach sound biblical doctrine, but the sinlessness of Jesus is an essential component to the gospel. If Jesus sinned, then he was no different from us, and he was unqualified to be the Savior. The pastor of one of this nation's largest congregations, and I won't mention his name, he made the recent statement that 
teaching the Bible verse by verse, as we attempt to do, is essentially cheating. He said what we're doing this morning is cheating. I assume because teaching verse by verse through a book means we know ahead of time we start teaching at the next verse next time after the verse we stopped at this time. And that's an advantage. So we don't have to beat our head against the wall in an attempt to decide where and what to teach each Sunday. This morning I'm stopping at verse 10. So next time we will start at verse 11. It's that simple. And this pastor said, that's cheating. No, that's not cheating. That's difficult. Because teaching verse by verse forces someone that is conscientious to comment on each verse, and some of those verses are extremely difficult to understand and are controversial verses. No, it's not cheating. It's hard. And we're going to see that next. Verse number three. Sin is incompatible with the Christian experience. Sin is incompatible with the Christian experience. Verse six. Whoever abides in him, Jesus, does not sin. Notice, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him, Jesus, nor known him, that is, Jesus. This verse seems to teach the person that sins doesn't know Jesus. On the surface, it seems it seems this verse is teaching that someone that knows Jesus in a relational, salvific sense, as we do, doesn't commit sin. He just doesn't sin. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God, Jesus, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God, notice, does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. On the surface, these verses seem to teach that we that have been born a second time, meaning we that have experienced a spiritual rebirth at salvation and are now Christians, we do not, we do not and cannot sin. On the surface, this is what those verses seem to teach. And if that interpretation is correct, then I'm in serious trouble. Because I have been born a second time. I have experienced a spiritual rebirth. I am a Christian. And shocking, I still sin. Verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Someone that is in right relationship to God through Jesus practices righteousness. 
that person practices righteousness. Remember, someone's righteous behavior authenticates his believing. These are difficult and controversial verses. So theologians have offered different interpretations on these verses. Let me mention just three of them. One, some teach that this means a Christian doesn't commit more serious sins. Some teach that this means a Christian can sin, but doesn't commit more serious sins, meaning the true Christian can commit lesser sins, but he doesn't commit more serious sins. This is similar to the historic Catholic perspective on sin, because Catholicism divides sins into separate groupings, lesser sins and greater sins. Notice, venial sins, according to Catholicism, venial sins are considered lesser sins, uh, similar to misdemeanors or lesser crimes. Venial sins would be cheating on an exam, using inappropriate language, shoplifting something inexpensive. Venial sins are not required to be confessed to a priest in order to receive forgiveness. Actually, attending Mass is supposed to forgive the person who has committed venial sins. But confession of venial sin is encouraged. Second are mortal sins. Mortal sins are more serious sins, similar to felonies. Mortal sins must be, must be confessed to a priest and forgiven, or else the offending person, the one who has sinned, could be assigned to eternal punishment in hell. Mortal sins would be having an abortion, driving intoxicated, consuming pornography, sterilization, unjustified homicide, cursing, using God's name, stealing something valuable, and get this, missing mass, if it is intentional, is considered a mortal sin. Missing mass intentionally, missing mass on Sundays and on special holy days could send someone to hell per Catholicism. That's the reason St. Gaul's parking lot is over full on Christmas and Easter. No one over there wants to go to hell. I wish I could find a verse that said that. That would solve the absentee problem here. Come to church or go to hell. That'd be great. Now these categories, venial sins and mortal sins, are subjective to some degree because Catholicism doesn't issue a precise, specific listing of sins that are subdivided into venial and mortal sins. But the bigger problem is the Bible never distinguishes between sins being venial and sins being mortal. Actually, all sin is mortal unless someone has forgiveness through Jesus. But some people believe this section we're reading from 1 John is a comment on true Christians not committing serious sins. Second, some believe this sinlessness here is referring to just the Christian's new nature 
his new nature and not his old sin nature he inherited from the first man. I agree. It is true uh, that a Christian has a dual nature. His old nature he received from the first man's sin in the garden, original sin. He received that nature through his ancestors, through subsequent generations, and then more recent through his parents. And then his second and new nature he received at his salvation. And that new nature doesn't sin. So some believe this sinlessness John has mentioned is a reference to just his new nature. I don't think that interpretation fits the context. Number three, a third option. Some people interpret this as teaching a doctrine called sinless perfection or Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification. The famous evangelist who founded Methodism was John Wesley. And he's probably the one person that made this sinless perfectionism teaching more acceptable. Although evangelist and revivalist Charles Finney did the same thing after him. This sinless doctrine teaches that as Christians, we can, in a progressive, gradual sense, overcome sin to where we become sinless. A Christian can progress to where we can become sinless. Now that word used to describe that process is sanctification. Sanctification is the word we use to describe the practical progression starting at salvation where someone gradually separates himself more and more from sin and gradually consecrates himself more and more unto God. That's sanctification. And this interpretation teaches entire sanctification, meaning that someone has so separated himself from sin that he no longer sins. I spoke to someone that uh, believed this, and uh, her response was so illogical. I, I said, we don't sin? We can progress to where we don't sin? Then how do I account for all the mess-ups I have made. She said, those mess-ups aren't sins, those are just mistakes. So if we just redefine our sins as mistakes, we can be sinless, apparently. That's irrational and illogical. Understand something, none of us at no point in time are sinless. Even the most mature Christian is still human, and no human this side of heaven is perfect. Sinless perfection contradicts what we learned earlier on in this series. Remember 1 John 8, pardon me, 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10. If we say that we have no sin, as per Christian perfectionism, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, as in sinless perfection, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. None of the opinions we just mentioned are acceptable. None of these 
perspectives on this passage is acceptable because the actual solution to understanding this last section is found in the language, the original language that is used in these verses. The correct perspective on these verses is found in understanding the Greek tenses that are used in this text. The verbs used here that are related to sin are all in the present tense. All of these verbs that are related to sin in this section we just read are in present tense. And those present tense verbs indicate continuous, habitual action. Don't miss this. These verses are commenting not on someone sinning sometimes. These verses are commenting on someone that practices continuous, ongoing, habitual, persistent sin. That is what John is addressing. Continuous, habitual, ongoing, persistent, unrepentant sin. All Christians sometimes sin. But sin is the exception and not the rule. Notice how the Amplified Bible translates these verses. Verse 6. No one who abides in Him, who lives and remains in communion with and in obedience to Him, deliberately, knowingly, and habitually commits, practices sin. No one who habitually sins has either seen or known Him meaning recognized, perceived, or understood him, or has had an experiential acquaintance with him. Verse 9, no one born, meaning begotten of God, deliberately, knowingly, and habitually practices sin. For God's nature abides in him. This principle of life remains permanently within him. And he cannot practice sinning because he is born or begotten of God. This sinlessness that is said to characterize true Christians doesn't mean, doesn't mean we don't sometimes sin because we do. We all do. Instead, it means we don't practice continuous, ongoing, habitual, persistent sin. And if we start to do that, if we are genuine Christians, then God will chasten us, meaning God will correct us. Or as my father said, God will take us to the woodshed. My dad grew up on a 600-acre cotton farm, 50 miles southeast of Memphis in Grand Junction, Tennessee. And uh, if his daddy said, you're going to the woodshed, it meant one thing. It meant he took his razor strap down and he applied it to his bottom. And God can do that. He has done that to me. To illustrate how twisted some supposed, supposed Christians are, I just read this. A former high school teacher named Courtney, age 35, who claims to be a Christian, a committed Christian, is now a popular OnlyFans star. For those that are uninformed, OnlyFans is essentially a porn site. 
She was raised in a strict Christian environment, but as an adult, she said she felt a disconnect from God until, until she discovered, she said, that God put her on earth to be a porn star. She said she is serving God through helping liberate other women from their sexual shame. She argues that her new career in porn was all part of God's plan. She announced, I now reject any teaching or institution, meaning church, that depicts God as an entity to be feared or to be judged by. God is loving, not fearful. He is accepting, not judgmental. According to John's comments we just read, Miss Courtney is self-deceived. She cannot be a true Christian because for the better part of the past decade, she has been engaged in continuous, habitual, persistent, and unrepentant sin. She does porn. And the God she claims to serve isn't the God of Scripture because the God of Scripture is a God to be feared and a God that has established moral standards and judges those that violate them. She will meet that God at some point and according to Matthew 7 verse 23, she will hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice. Notice, you who practice lawlessness. The big idea from this entire section is that we are to practice holiness, to be as pure as possible in a spiritual sense. But the question is, how do we practice holiness? How do we? Do we wear sackcloth and ashes? Do we isolate ourselves and hide in a monastery? Do we pray for hours and hours on end? Do we climb the 28 stairs at Rome, considered to be the holy staircase as Martin Luther did, and he climbed them on his knees? No, it's not that complicated. We just read this earlier. Notice, one more time. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But as he, God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, meaning behavior. Verse 16. Because as it is written, be holy, for I, God, am holy. But notice, we didn't read the preceding verse. Verse 14. As obedient children, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former desires, lusts, as in your ignorance. The answer to becoming and having holiness, the secret to personal practical holiness, is obedience. Obedience. This could be perceived as oversimplification, but I don't think so. As we are obedient to Scripture in all things, the Holy Spirit can operate in sanctifying grace through that obedience to bring about in us a practical separation from sin. As we are obedient to Scripture in all things, the Holy Spirit can operate in sanctifying grace through that obedience to bring about in us practical separation from sin, and that's called holiness. Most people have probably eaten something from 
the fast food restaurant Burger King. I don't frequent that establishment, but I have had a big Whopper before. It seems Burger King received some recent and serious pushback from another king, King Philip or Philippe from Belgium. Burger King was about to open its first location in Belgium, so it launched uh, an online campaign that asked users to answer the question, who is the king? Who is the king? And then gave them the chance to vote for who they wanted to be king. The options were a cartoon characterization of the real Belgium King Philip or Philippe or the fictional Burger King that we all recognize. Those were the options. The website users um, read this, uh, this sentence. Two kings, two kings and one single crown. So who shall reign? That fake election caught the attention of the Belgian palace. And the spokesperson for Philippe, or King Philip, communicated his extreme disapproval that there was such an online election. So that Burger King online election was scrapped. But in the end, the real King Philip did agree with Burger King that there can be only one king. There is only one king, and he's not Charles III. He's King Jesus, and he is the king of all kings. And as Christians, we are his subjects, and we are to act in complete obedience to his wishes and serve him until we see him. And if we do that, we will be able to practice holiness. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned. I hope it's made sense. None of us are what we ought to be. We're frail, we're flawed. And you want us to cooperate with your spirit so that we might be able to generate and produce practical holiness, a separation from sin that is obvious and apparent to people around us. So help us, help us achieve that goal, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.